2 Samuel chapter 16, if you'll join me there. You know, this section of 2 Samuel, these chapters we've been going through, what we'll look at tonight are kind of some very fitting reminders of the reality that sometimes when life and circumstances just look like everything is completely going out of control, that quite frankly, those are some of the times when God is so in control, it's actually quite astonishing uh, how much we would actually think or by what we observe, feel like that it's all falling apart and God's out of control and everything's out of control because we see in these passages as some very difficult, unfortunate things are happening. It looks like in David's life he has every reason to lose hope that things are just completely falling apart at the seams and the reality is as God's holding it all together, God's orchestrating what's even taking place, superintending, if you would, over all things, and is working through events and circumstances. And even when it looked like God was not at work, God was completely at work, even though David couldn't see it yet. And these passages of Scripture kind of point some of these things out to us. If you remember by way of kind of where we just drop in here, parachute landing right in the middle of kind of some events that are happening, David's son Absalom has just led a rebellion against his father and against the throne as the king. And Absalom, in a high act of treason, basically through a series of circumstances, was seeking to draw people away to himself, sort of to promote himself in a process of time. It says stealing the hearts of the people of the kingdom, trying to win them over to himself, and then ultimately came to the place we saw last time where he set up his throne in Hebron uh, outside of the capital city of Jerusalem and proclaimed himself as the new king there in Israel and basically was looking to usurp the throne from his father and basically starts in some ways sort of a civil war uh, in the nation of Israel and proclaimed himself as the new king. Uh, and now at this point, David found himself in a very difficult circumstance, not only being betrayed by his own son and the painful experience of that, uh, but the fact that someone now is a rival to the throne looking to usurp David's authority as the king and, and take over the kingdom. And David, we saw rather meekly, rather than fight and resist, David just very meekly chose to basically gather together his staff and his royal advisors and his family, and he just began to, to depart from Jerusalem and to move out of the area. And again, because David's love was for the people and David was a true leader, he, he wasn't look, seeking to use people to his own advantage, but he wanted to care for the people as a shepherd king. David knew that if he resisted initially, it would do nothing. We saw David said, but cause Absalom to come and bring disaster and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And it would have just been a bloodbath Innocent people would have died in the process. There would have been violence that was unnecessary. And David cared more about his family and the people that he was serving than he did trying to hold on to his own position or his own prerogative to have his way. So David, with an open hand, kind of trusted the sovereignty of God. And he just very graciously, though he was the anointed and the, the enthroned king, departed from Jerusalem, took his family and those who were with him, some 600 of his mighty men were kind of his royal bodyguards left with David. To add insult to injury, David then found out that Ahithophel, one of his chief advisors and close friends, had chosen to betray him as well and had chosen to go with Absalom in this rebellion. So now David's dealing with the difficulty, not only of the betrayal of a close family member, but now the betrayal of one of his closest advisors, one of his closest friends and the painful experience of the betrayal of someone else very close to him. And as David's heading out of the city, it says that David, when he got word of this, it says that he prayed and just said, Lord, I pray you would turn all the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness because Ahithophel was a very wise counselor and he's saying God if he's going to go and support Absalom in this rebellion I just pray that God you would frustrate 
the purposes of all his counsel and that it would always turn out to be foolish, unhelpful counsel. And he just prayed that God would sovereignly take the words and the ideas and to his goodwill and, and plan would work things out. And David there began to worship and we're told there at the end of chapter 15 at that point, Hushai, one of David's close friends, comes to him wanting to join him as he's departing. And David said, look, I appreciate you desiring to be loyal to me, but at this point in time, he said, you would actually be more useful to me, not traveling with me as another companion. It seems that Hushai was an older man and probably would have slowed down David and, and the people now as they're trying to make their way like refugees out in the wilderness. He said, but what I could use is I could use a set of eyes back on the inside there in Jerusalem. So he told Hushai, listen, you can be more useful not being with me. You could be more useful actually if you would go back into Jerusalem and serve as sort of like a double agent. And you can be there around Absalom and you can send word to me in regards to what's going on and why is he doing this and what's his intention. And you can help me to stay informed so I know how to respond and how to handle this in regards to this rebellion and this palace coup that's taking place under my son Absalom. So Hushai, David's friend, we saw at the end of the chapter there, chapter 15, verse 37, Hushai, David's friend, it says, went back into the city as Absalom now came into Jerusalem, knowing David had departed. So we pick up in chapter 16, verse 1, with that backdrop saying, and when David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. So another person now as David's departing arises over the hill, it says, and David takes notice that this is Ziba, the chief servant, remember, of Mephibosheth. Now going back a, a little ways, a number of chapters, you remember that Mephibosheth was basically the sole surviving son of David's close, close friend, probably David's best friend he ever had, Jonathan, who was King Saul's son. And David and Jonathan had this incredible bond as two men, this, this camaraderie. They were just like you know, brothers in the way they shared a close friendship. And when they were parting, David and Jonathan had made a covenant. And, and Jonathan had asked David to covenant that when he came to power, because he knew that he was the next anointed king of Israel, that he would always show kindness to his family. And so when David came to power, though Jonathan had died, David asked, is there any remaining relatives among Jonathan's family? Because I promised my best friend that I would show kindness to his family. Now, that was important because typically uh, when you became a king, you went and exterminated all the remaining family members, anyone connected to the throne, to make sure that there was no rebellion to try and come back and that that family line would retake the power and the throne. So this was an important covenant that they had made. And so David does what's contrary to culture. He finds Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, remember it says, was a crippled man who had been paralyzed from the days of his youth from an accident, which means he can't help himself. He can't sustain himself. And when he hears King David wants to see him, he's thinking, oh, this is not good. He's just going to put me to death because he's in power now. And instead, it says that David wanted to show kindness to him. David blessed him. David took him and told him, look, I want you to eat at the king's table for the rest of your life and I'm going to take care of you. And he commanded Ziba and all the servant staff to take care of Mephibosheth. And so David is just, you know, with an overflow of blessing and generosity, shown such kindness to Mephibosheth, this paralyzed man, uh, the son of Jonathan. And now Ziba, his chief servant, comes over the hill at this difficult time in David's life. And it says, verse 1 there, that he met him with a couple of saddled donkeys and 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Now, when you have just fleed for your life like a refugee, and you have 600 plus people with you and wives and children, uh, and you didn't have time to pack up provisions, this is a pretty encouraging sight to see somebody coming now with all this food and provisions. And it says, the king said to Ziba, what do you mean with these, to do with these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. Great, we have transportation now for those who are feeble and can't walk. Uh, he says, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat. 
and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. So he says, King, this is for you. Uh, we've heard what's happened. We wanted to do something to repay your kindness that you've shown to my master. And, 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 and we're here to, to help you in this time of crisis. And so no doubt David is blessed by this. So verse three, David asked the likely question. He asked Ziba, so, so where is your master's son? In other words, where's Mephibosheth? You're here. Uh, where's Mephibosheth at? Is he coming with us? Is, he's been eating at my table for these years that I've been the king. I've been showing him kindness and generosity where's he at and Ziba responded to the king indeed he is staying in Jerusalem for he said today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me so the king said to Ziba here all that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours and Ziba said I humbly bow before you that I might find favor in your sight my lord O king. So when David asks, where's Mephibosheth, as the servant of Mephibosheth comes out with these supplies, the answer comes back, well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news to you, David, but Mephibosheth saw what's happened and he figures, well, perhaps what's going to take place through Absalom, or maybe if you and Absalom have a civil war and you both die, is God's going to use these circumstances to ultimately restore the kingdom back to the house of Saul and Jonathan and he will end up being able to take the throne. So uh, he's an opportunist, David, and unfortunately uh, he's chosen not to remain loyal to you. And, and, and in a sense, what Ziba does here is break this news at a time when David is very vulnerable in his life. He's going through hardship, heartache. He's been wounded by his own son and family member. Uh, he's been betrayed by one of his closest friends. He, every, his whole world has just fallen apart. He's very vulnerable. Now, the problem here is this. This is a complete lie. And we're going to see in the chapters ahead, or if you've read ahead in Second Samuel, you're aware that Ziba is completely conveying false information. This is the furthest thing from the truth. What Ziba is doing is he's an opportunist. And he's manipulating David at a time when he's hurt and vulnerable and taking advantage in a time of personal crisis. He's kind of like the individuals who, you know, let's say a horrible storm, a natural disaster happens in a particular area. And there are people evil and selfish and sick enough that they will prey upon people in the midst of their misfortune like an opportunist. And this is basically what Ziba's doing. He fabricates this total lie as an effort to try and position himself and to manipulate King David at this time. And he preys upon David in a time when he's hurt and he's weak and he's vulnerable. He tells him this lie that Mephibosheth has turned against him. And basically, he's able to manipulate David to basically uh, make a poor judgment. He feels hurt and wounded. And so the first thing David says is, you know what then, if that's the case, everything that was once Mephibosheth's Ziba, it's yours now. I give it to you since you were kind enough to bring out the food and the provisions and you were kind enough to show some generosity back to me for what I've done for this household. Then you know what? All the blessing that was his, I take it from him and it's yours and I give it to him. And David here, unfortunately, because he does not have all the facts and he doesn't have all the right information, makes sort of a impulsive decision. And in a moment of being hurt, in a time in his life of personal weakness, he makes poor judgments regarding a situation. And, you know, I think we have to be very careful because in our times in our lives, when we're in the midst of a personal maybe hardship, when we're going through a time of personal weakness, maybe we've been hurt or we're hurting because of something that's happened or we're in the midst of a crisis, we have to be very careful because we can become very vulnerable to making poor judgments in the times in our life when we're hurt. And when we're going through personal difficulties and we're wounded and we're processing things and going through a hard time, unfortunately, those are some of the times when we can be most easily manipulated by misinformation and by feelings rather than facts and we can make poor judgments and here David makes a very poor judgment by listening to information which is not true Proverbs 18:17 says the first one to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him and this is a great proverb for this because Ziba sounded so right but he was telling a lie 
He, he was using this in a manipulative way and preying upon David and seeking his own advantage. And we're going to see, I believe it's in chapter 19, David will encounter Mephibosheth and then all the facts will come out. And David will realize, oh my goodness, I was played. I made a poor decision and I listened to him without verifying with Mephibosheth that this was actually true. You know, it's often been said before, there are always three sides to every story. There's one person's side, there's the other person's side, and then there's usually the truth. And so it's so vital. You know, we don't want to just listen to one person and sometimes we hear the first person and they come and, and we instantly become sympathetic because they're the first one to run to us with their complaint or their comments and we then tend to listen to them and we make the mistake of sometimes giving heed to what's being said. Proverbs 18.13 says this, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame to him. And this is the proverb here of what David is doing. He's answering and making a judgment before he hears the whole case. And it ends up being a folly and a shame. And David makes a poor judgment because he reacts in his hurt and heartache and just doesn't process things well. So be careful when you're hurting. Sometimes you can be vulnerable to making poor decisions if you're not careful. So verse 5 says, Now the king came to Baharim, and there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. And he came out, as if David wasn't feeling bad enough, gets worse. He came out cursing continuously as he came. Now, that doesn't mean he was using profanity. He was cursing David. You're going to see he's calling down curses against David. Verse 6, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, thus when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue, that is, you scoundrel. Come on out, David, get out of that city, you don't belong there anyway, you're a bloodthirsty man, and you're nothing but a rotten scoundrel, it says, he's throwing stones while he's saying these things. Verse 8, the Lord has brought upon you, he continues, all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord, notice, the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. So here David's coming out. He's already in a hard time. You want to talk about kicking somebody when they're down? I mean, he's already hurting. He's been pushed off his throne, betrayed by his own son and family members. He's going through a time of great personal loss. His own friend has betrayed him. And David's processing all these things. He's already hurting and wounded. And, and, and now here comes this man, Shimei. And as they're just traveling, he starts all of a sudden, he's launching rocks. At him, and he's yelling out curses to David. And notice what he's doing. He's basically in verse 8 saying to David, you're just getting what you deserve. David, you deserve this. Because of all the rotten things you did to the house of Saul, he says, the blood of the house of Saul who you reigned in his place. And he's saying, the Lord has delivered the kingdom over to your son. This is God's doing. God's doing this to you, David. All these hardships, all this betrayal, all this painful stuff, God's punishing you, David. The Lord is bringing upon you what you deserve because of the rotten person you are and all the things that you've done wrong. And he's saying, this is God's judgment against you. And he's heaping these accusations and this slander. And the reality is, listen, this was the furthest thing from the truth. David, remember, was nothing but gracious to the house of Saul. David bent over backwards to try and show restraint when Saul was jealously trying to kill David. David sought to honor Saul's reign as the king for such a long period of time he was never hateful or or vengeful against Saul's house he didn't take the throne from Saul and and, and the furthest thing from God's will was Absalom leading this rebellion this is a rebellion of wickedness and sinful selfish actions that Absalom is is creating this wasn't God causing this but he says you're just experiencing what you deserve and he's just beating David up with his words and condemning him and slandering him. And, and I'll tell you, this is often how the voice of the devil seeks to work in our lives. 
You know, the, the devil has no mercy. The devil never looks at us and, and has any compassion or pity. There's never a time where, let's say, you're struggling and already going through some hard things where the devil says, nah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, he is kind of going through a hard time. I mean, how about we give him a break for today? We'll go bother somebody else. The devil does the exact opposite. When the devil sees you in a moment of weakness or when you're already hurting, he's the kind of person, then he's going to kick you in the gut and try and knock the wind out of you when you're already down on the ground gasping for air. And so often it comes through the lying voice. Jesus said the devil is what? The father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. The first time the devil's voice shows up in scripture, Genesis chapter three, what's he doing? He's lying. He's lying and he's causing questioning in the heart of humanity. And the devil always seeks to work the same way. He speaks lies and slanders. His lying voice wants to make us feel condemned and, and discouraged and to make us question what's true. And to make us question ourselves and feel guilt and feel confusion and all these kind of things. This is God doing this to you. God doesn't love you. He's punishing you. And, and all this you know, hurtful th stuff that we then begin to wrestle with on top of our own difficulties. And so this man, Shimei, I mean, he's throwing rocks against you know, David as the king and saying these horrible things. Well, verse 9, you want a guy like this on your staff. Abishai, the son of Zariah seeing these rocks and hearing these things, he says to David, to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, David had a good set of bodyguards. I mean, he just, I, I mean, I love this. I mean, I have to wonder if this guy potentially might have been Italian. I just can't help but to wonder. <laughs> he just says, hey, boss. Does that. You want me to go over there and take this guy? I mean, just off of his head. You want me to go over there and eliminate him? I mean, what's this guy doing? And, I mean, and, and these were, remember, combat-hardened men. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't just mincing words. This guy would have really done that. He would have went over and just lopped this guy's head off and just silenced him and, and put him to death. And, and he's bothered by this. I, who is he to sit here and insult our king to, to do this to you? And he just says, David, do you want me to go over there and just put him to death and just eliminate him? I'll shut him up real quick, off with his head one time. And I mean, just loyal to his king here. But the king said to him, verse 10, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so so david says listen I, I you know i appreciate that but you know look i i don't want to respond by demonstrating the very things he's accusing me of are true if you go over there and take off his head you just confirmed i'm a bloodthirsty man the very things he's accusing me of if you go over there and just kill him in an act of rage then i'm going to look like an insecure king and and like that i am cruel and and the very things he's accusing me of that I'm just carrying on because he said in verse 8 that David was guilty of the blood of the house of Saul. So if you go over there and just take off his head, you're just going to confirm everything he's falsely accusing me of. And he's saying, just let, let him run his mouth. Let him curse. Let him slander and say the things that he wants to say. And David, even just his, I mean, the maturity, recognizing the sovereignty of God, David says here in regards to what's going on, he says, the Lord has said to him, curse David. In other words, God's letting him do it. Uh, God's allowing him to say these things. I think he's almost saying, listen, uh, God shut the mouths of lions and, and God can take off people's heads too. <laughs> and so if God's letting him run his mouth, then let him run his mouth. Let him say what he wants to say. Let, let him have you know, the opportunity to say those things. And David said to verse 11, to Abishai and to all his servants, see, how my son who came from my own body seeks my life, how much more now may this Benjamite, if my own sons betrayed me? He says, how much more? It's no surprise that there would be people like this. Again, David understands part of leadership is being accused and criticized and falsely, you know, uh, at times, you know, misjudged and so forth. I mean, this is just, this goes with the territory. It goes with the territory. There are going to be times where there are accusations and people who don't like you and don't agree with you, your decisions you've made and so forth. And, and people can be pretty nasty with their mouths. People can say some, I mean, really harsh and vindictive. I, I remember when I was pastoring back in Pennsylvania, the Calvary Chapel there in York, 
And we had a meeting in regards to, you know, just some of the, the policies and dynamics and children's ministry and so forth. And there was a, a family who didn't agree with a, a decision or two I made. So they started calling me, they started calling me a child Nazi. And, and they were telling me that, that, I was, that I was the spiritual version of Hitler because I was trying to exterminate all the children from the sanctuary. And I mean, just all this. And you're thinking, goodness gracious. I mean, it's, it's a little dramatic there, isn't it? <laughs> You know, I mean, but people, it, it's amazing what people, I remember when I went on one of the first missions trips I went on, and this lady from our church, very, you know, outwardly, very sweet, praise the Lord, hallelujah, you got to watch those type, you know, I mean, just very super hyper-spiritual, hyper-spiritual, well, I love this church, and she's, you know, I was away on a missions trip, so she invited my wife to come over for lunch, and Trish, you know, sweet as pie, and oh, that's nice, you know, I mean, a little bit extra company, why, you know, Tony's away on a missions trip, and she had kids that were young like we did, and so Trish went over to have lunch with her, and she basically said, the reason I invited you over is because I need to tell you, your husband is a cult leader. And, and, I, and I can see that you're blind and you don't see that there's anybody who can, I mean, he is just, he's occultic. I mean, just one of this whole rant. And she's thinking, this is interesting. <laughs> but the, it's astonishing. I mean, the, the, where people will go. And so here David just realizes, says, let him alone. <laughs> let him curse. For the Lord has ordered him. He says, verse 12, it may be, and I, this is David's maturity, trusting the sovereignty of God. It may be the Lord will look on my affliction, the Hebrew is my tears, because these things are hurtful when they're said. It may be the Lord will look on my tears and affliction, my pain, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing. You know, that's a Romans 8.28 thing. God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so David says, you know what? Maybe if he's so mean to me, he'll make God be more nice to me. Maybe if he's so nasty and he tries to do hurtful things to me, knowing how good God is, that God will say, you know what, just to shut that guy up, or you know, I mean, just to prove that David is my chosen servant, I'm going to bless David even more now because of what's being done or said here. And so David says, look, just, let, let's just leave this in the Lord's hands. And I'll tell you something. It's often wisely been said before, if, if you want to try and defend yourself, God will let you. If you want to defend yourself, God will let you. But the reality is, is God will always do a much better job defending us. It tells us in Psalm 37 that God will bring forth our righteousness as the noonday sun. That's God's business to do that. And look, there are going to be times when people are going to say things and hurtful things are going to be, and we have to make a decision in those times. And here, David just retreats. It's a great picture of Jesus because it says in Peter of Jesus that when he was reviled, he reviled not. He didn't, he didn't return. He, he just let it happen. He committed himself to the Father. Jesus was perfect. And he was falsely accused at times. He was slandered wrongly. So David says, hey, maybe God will bless me extra because of what this guy's doing wrong. And David and his men went along the road, verse 13, and Shimei went along opposite the hill and cursed as he went and threw stones and kicked up dust. So he had a good old time until he finally ran out of rocks, I guess. Verse 14, now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. And meanwhile, Absalom, back at his ranch, and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai the archite, David's friend, remember who David sent back to Jerusalem to be his sort of double agent and informant, when he came back to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king. Long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go out with your friend? And Hushai said to him, No, but the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. So, as Hushai goes back, David's friend, who David's asked, remember, to serve, to help him as an informant from the inside, he comes into Absalom's presence, and Absalom is filled with pride right now. So he just wisely takes advantage of the situation. The first words of him, long live the king. Now, wait a minute. Hushai didn't say, what king? 
I believe that Hushai is saying this, and sometimes words have double meanings. I think he says, long live the king. Long live the king. <laughs> but Absalom is so filled with pride, he says, oh, well, why? I, mean, I assumed you would have been a little more loyal to your friend, but already you see how incredible I am as the new leader, huh? I thought you'd be loyal to your father, he says there, and to your great friend, he says there in, uh, in verse 17. He says, why did you not go with your friend? He thinks that he's talking about him. I don't think he is. I think he's talking about David, but Absalom is so arrogant, he just assumes he's got to be talking about me because that's what pride does. Pride always misconstrues things. Pride always causes us to have a distorted perspective, and we really think everything's about us. And this is where Absalom is. So he just falsely, I mean, this works out perfectly. And I think Hushai really, if you look at his language, is probably thinking about David because in verse 18, he says, no, but whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be. And with him, verse 18, I will remain. In other words, I will remain loyal to David. And that's why I'm in your presence, believe it or not because I will remain loyal to the one whom the Lord has chosen, because the Lord has chosen David. He hasn't chosen you, Absalom. And I think this is the idea when you read the language here. He says, I, whom shall I serve? I shall serve in the presence of his son. Whose son? The son of the king that God has chosen. And as I served in your father's presence, now I'm going to, he just says, I'm going to be in your presence. Still serving your father, but I'll be in your presence, Mr. Thinker King. <laughs> I mean, this is the idea here. Very wonderful, the wisdom of all this. Verse 20, so Absalom then said to Ahithophel, this very wise counselor who did betray David, give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. Remember, David had left 10 of his concubines to tend the palace when he left. Go into your father's concubines whom he's left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house. Remember the flat roofs there and uh, that culture. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. So Ahithophel gives this counsel to this new arrogant young king who's usurped the throne. He says, look, you want my advice? Here's what I think you ought to do. You want to utterly disgrace your father, those 10 women whom he left to manage his household, his, a part of his you know, concubines, the royal harem, if you would, in some ways, because this would be a way to disgrace a king if you took over a kingdom. He says, go in and have sexual relations with all those women in the sight of all Israel to demonstrate the disgrace and that you now have the power and you're the one in authority and you have pushed David out of Israel. This would be a cultural display of a complete takeover of power and it would be such a disgrace. It also, he knew Ahithophel, would completely sever once for all any chance for there to be reconciliation between David and his son. And so he says, if you do this, you'll strengthen your kingdom because he says, you'll convey to all the people, to the hands of those who are with you to be strong behind you because they'll realize, wow, Absalom is serious about taking over this kingdom because he just did something so disgraceful to his father that there is no way there's ever going to be reconciliation. So, so this guy, he's serious about taking over the kingdom. And it would rally more support around him. So this counsel is given and Absalom participates in the sight of all Israel. They put a tent on the top of the house. So everyone was aware of what was going on when it was happening publicly. And verse 23 tells us the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was if one had inquired of the oracle of God, so was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. So the Bible wants us to see that this man, Ahithophel, was really, really a gifted man in regards to giving counsel. He was a great advisor. He just was a very wise, savvy man, a great advisor. He had blessed with a tremendous gift. The unfortunate thing is because his heart got into a wrong place, he used his gift in a very unfortunate way. And, and he began to get off track because of some animosity that he had that caused him to end up using his gift in a very perverse manner. Well, chapter 17 says, Moreover, Ahithophel then said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. 
and I will come upon him while he's weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike only the king. And then I will bring back all the people to you. And when all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So Ahithophel gives his next word of advice to this young new king who's usurped the throne. He says, listen, it's time to capitalize now on an opportunity. He says, let me rally together 12,000 people and I'm going to pursue David. Again, remember, David had about 600 men. This guy realizes how battle-hardened David's men were. He says, I'll take 12,000 about 20 times more than David and his men. And he says, let me go out. And right now, David's he's disorganized. They're on the run. He says, they're weary and they're weak. And, and I can come upon them with 12,000 soldiers and they'll be so terrified, shock and awe, he says, that the, all the people will just flee and run for their life. And he says, and all I'll have to do is just kill David, the only one that needs to die, he says, it will be a rather civil thing and then I can bring back all the people to you. More people to cheer for King Absalom. And this certainly appealed to Absalom's flesh. But Ahithophel, notice all the personal pronouns. I think the, the indication of where he is, let me do this. I will arise and I will come upon him and I will strike him. You, you can tell he doesn't really care about Absalom. He's, he's looking to position himself. He's just posturing here for more opportunity for himself because of his animosity towards David. Well, Absalom, it says, verse 5, wanted to hear, apparently, a, a second opinion. So he called in Hushai, the archite, and said, let us hear what he says too. And when Hushai came to Absalom, he spoke to him saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. So here's Ahithophel's plan. What do you think about that? Now, what Absalom doesn't realize, remember David prayed, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness, that God is now going to use Hushai to present a different plan. And Hushai, remember, is David's friend and David's double agent. And Hushai is going to do whatever he can to try and buy David more time because David's on the run. So he's going to present a plan now because he knows the one weakness in the plan that Ahithophel just presented is number one, if that happens, Ahithophel is going to get all the credit because he's going to go do it and everybody's going to say, hey, Ahithophel killed David and Absalom's not going to get any glory out of that. That's not going to appeal to Absalom's ego. And also that's going to happen very quickly and David might get stuck and attacked. So he's going to create a plan now that would give David and the people with him the maximum amount of time to get more distance created between them and any pursuit coming upon them. So this is what Hushai will now do in a very wise and crafty way. It says, verse 8, that Hushai said, you know your father and his men. They are mighty men and they are enraged in their minds. You know, they said, he said, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at first that whatever, whoever hears it will say there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. So Hushai says, whoa, 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 step back. He says, you're forgetting who Ahithophel says you should go chase after. You're talking about David, the giant slayer and his 600 mighty men who are battle-hardened combatants, who are incredible warriors. And he's saying, do you, do you realize how angry they probably are right now as a result of this rebellion that you have just created, pushing them off the throne? And he says, They're, those men are enraged right now. They're like a bear robbed of its cubs and you don't want to you know, tangle with a bear that's been robbed of its cubs. And he says, and besides, David is too savvy to fall prey to what Ahithophel's recommending. He's not camping with the people, he says. By now, he's separated himself. He's in a, a personal hiding spot because he knows that if his men are attacked, he doesn't want to be right in the midst of them. He's too smart of a military strategist. And he says, if you try the approach of Ahithophel, What's going to happen as soon as the attack happens, David's men are going to turn in rage and start slaughtering 
the people who are less experienced and word's going to get out and he says there, verse 10, even the men who are the most valiant that we can gather together are going to begin to get terrified. Their hearts are going to melt like wax and they're going to run away in fear and the whole plan is going to fall through because he says, you got to remember that your father is a man who is like a, a mighty warrior and those who are with him are valiant warriors as well. So his suggestion in, in comparison to that, verse 11, therefore I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for a multitude and that you go out to battle in person. So he says, I recommend this. 12,000 men, are you kidding me? Even 20 to one, David and his men could still crush us. I'm recommended you get all of Israel, like the sand of the seashore, from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, bring together the entire nation under your leadership in Absalom. You lead them out in battle because you're the king, man. You need to get the glory. Now, what, what Hushai knows is two things. One, it's going to take a long time to muster an army of the entire nation. And so taking a long time to gather together all those troops is going to delay and give more time for David and his people to escape further and create more distance between them and those who are pursuing him. So he's trying to stall for David's sake here to give David more safety and time to get away. And he also knows that he's appealing to Absalom's ego. 12,000 men. Oh, come on. You're the next king of Israel, man. Get the whole nation behind you and march out yourself and claim the glory and be a true king and, and have the whole nation behind you. And this would appeal to the fleshly ego of young Absalom and his arrogance. So it says, verse 12, we will come upon him in some place where he may be found and will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, there shall not be left so much as one. We'll kill everybody. No chance. No, let's leave any of his men alive. We don't need just David. Let's wipe out all his helpers and all of his bodyguard so there's never a resistance ever again from him. Verse 13, moreover, if he's withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. In other words, we'll have such a, an overwhelming force if need be, we'll just conquer a whole city to take them down. So verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than the advice of Ahithophel. And here's why. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that he might bring disaster on Absalom. So it was God's intent to dethrone Absalom. It was God's intent to deal with David's issue. It was God's intent to deal with the sin, the mistreatment, the wrongdoing, the rebellion, all of what Absalom was doing wrong. It was the intent of the Lord to say, David, I'll deal with that for you. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. David, you don't have to, David didn't resist, remember? He just kept an open hand. And, and now the Lord is acting to deal with David's issue and problem for him and the mistreatment that's come against him. And so what God does is he frustrates the counsel that's given here and he causes the people to like the advice of Hushai better than the advice of Ahithophel so that his purposes may come to pass in the midst of all these things. And again, I want you, this is the sovereignty of God. God is superintending over all these events. I mean, just in, in conversations. Think about this. Here you have you know, a, a high-ranking leader and you have two people who are chiefs of staff, advisors around him, they give their input and God goes like this, mm, not that input, I'm going to make him listen to that input. God's sovereign, man. And so God's orchestrating events, even deciding who listens to what conversation and who follows what advice and God is just pulling the strings, coordinating things to make them happen according to his purposes and his plans. And what is God showing? At a time when it looked like everything was out of control, God was completely in control. God was controlling everything, even down to conversations in boardrooms. <laughs> Even to who would listen to what advice or not what advice. And so, again, what a great reminder at the times when it feels like everything is out of control. Where's God in all this? 
He's right there, invisible, not wanting to be seen, working in invisible ways, coordinating things for his purposes and plans and making things all come to pass. Because ultimately, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, God causes all things to work together to the counsel of his will. And there is no counsel, the Bible says. No counsel, no wisdom, no nothing that can stand against the plans and the purposes of the Lord. And so God here was going to orchestrate this. What a great thing that we can have faith, that we don't have to fear, that we can rest, that God is orchestrating things. David's not involved. God's doing all this without David being there. Verse 15, so Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar, thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel. And thus and so I've advised. Now therefore send quickly to tell David, do not spend this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. So he says, David, listen. He sends word to David. Get on the move. I bought you time, David. <laughs> They've listened to my plan, but get moving lest they catch up to you. Now, Jonathan and Ahimehaz stayed at Enrogel. Those were two of the men David sent back as well, for they dared not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would come and tell them, and then they would go and tell King David. So here's how the line of communication would go back and forth, informing and passing information from David to what was happening in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, a lad, verse 18, saw them and told Absalom. So their cover was blown. But both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Baharim, who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth. Probably it was a dry well. They went down inside. She put some, uh, you know, uh, sort of things over top of it, grain or maybe bushes or branches to make it look unseen and spread ground grain on it. And the thing was not known. They were hidden away. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house and said, where are Ahimehaz and Jonathan? The woman said to them, they've gone over to the water brook. And they've searched and they could not find them. Then they returned to Jerusalem. Now it came to pass after they had departed, they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to him, David, arise, cross over the water quickly. For thus Ahithophel is advised against you. So David and all the people who were with him arose, crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, not one of them was left who had gone over the Jordan. So they're now using the opportunity fleeing, getting away quickly. In verse 23, this sad verse in the midst of this story. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey, arose and went home to his house, to his city. He put his household in order and he hanged himself and died and he was buried in his father's tomb. So another reference, we have a few of these in the scripture of someone who committed suicide. Ahithophel here, Someone who had made some poor choices in his life. He got himself into some problematic situations. He realized now he's on the wrong side, doing the wrong things. And he's dealing with issues and mistakes and things aren't working out the way he expected them to. He's dealing with his own disappointments. His expectations have fallen through and he's dealing with all these things. Listen, I don't think this was just him pouting because his advice wasn't listened to one time. This is a compilation of life issues and, and things going on. And rather than deal with his issues, he selfishly chooses to just put an end to his own life. A and he commits, really, in essence, what is self-murder. And he chooses to end his life. And rather than experience through the difficulties and endure through the difficulties and figure it out and get his life back on track and have the courage to seek to steer the ship back in the right direction and work through it. Instead, it says he just chooses to dismiss himself from life's experience and he makes a very, very poor choice, the most selfish in some ways of all choices as humans, to end his own life and to bring certainly that grief to his family and to his loved ones around him as he chose to depart in this way to hang himself. Verse 24, And David then went to Mahanim, and Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men with him. And Absalom made Amasa, that was his cousin, captain of the army instead of Joab. And Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. There's going to be a test on that. You got that? Just checking. Verse 26. So Israel 
And Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. And it happened when David had come to Mahanim, that Shobi, the son of Namash or Nahash of Rabbah, of the people of Ammon, Makir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogelim, they brought beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley and flour, parched grain and beans and lentils and parched seeds and honey and curds and sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So again, David now after these events here come out these three men, Shobi and Mekir and Barzillai. Notice, none of them Jews, all Gentiles, but apparently men whose hearts God had touched. Maybe they had experiences with David and appreciated him as their king. And they now come out with all these provisions, food and, and, and drink and all these things that were necessary because it says that they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So they now are God's vessels to bring out provision and support to help and to sustain David and the people in the time of crisis. And what a beautiful picture, just this practical demonstration of love. David and his family and the people that were with him, they were in a genuine time of crisis. And they didn't come out and say, hey, can we preach a sermon to you? They came out and said, how can we help practically? You look like you need food and supplies and provisions and in the midst of a crisis they found the most helpful way to help those in the midst of a crisis and in this situation it was food and provisions because they were weak and weary and needed to be sustained and the Lord supplied and I look at this ending of this chapter and I think again what a beautiful thing remember early on and David was first leaving and it says here comes Ziba in this deceptive, tricky, sneaky, lying way to bring him provisions. It, it, and, and it almost looked like, wow, praise the Lord. God sent provisions through Ziba. God was going to send provisions. It was right here. And God didn't, God didn't need to use people who had evil intentions and unhealthy agendas. God was going to send David what he needed. And it's just a reminder, listen, God will always supply. God will always meet the needs. God will always come through. It may be a few hours or a day or two later than what we expect and we think we're in the crisis, but God will never, ever not be on time. It may not come in my time, but he's always on time and he will always come through to meet whatever our need is. Let's stand together. We'll pray.